The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We are making ever so slow progress through Romans 5. And I can assure you that we will not be speeding up anytime soon. This is some of the most priceless and precious truth in God's holy word. It's like we are taking a hike through the Himalayas and over every top, the scenery just gets better and more wonderful and more different. Romans chapter 5. Let's pick it up in verse 6 where we left off. Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. I want to begin this morning with a statement that that you need to wrestle with. I want to say it a couple times because you might not initially agree with it, but upon further reflection, I hope you'll follow where I'm going. For the gospel to make sense to you, you must first come to the point of understanding that the gospel makes no sense. For the gospel to really make sense to you, you must come to the point where you believe, you understand that the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, intellectually actually makes no sense. That might sound like gibberish, doublespeak, but it's a repeated biblical truth. What a true Christian believes, what the gospel really means, what the Bible really teaches goes against all human logic. No earthly mind would ever invent this plan. The gospel is counterintuitive. It's countercultural. It's illogical. It's against nature. It's supernatural. Add to that list that the gospel is traumatic. It's horrific. It's breathtaking. It's astonishing. And ultimately, the gospel is unbelievable in the most literal sense of the term. You can add to that that the Bible says the gospel is actually offensive. And one more, it says if you believe it, you're foolish. You pile all that up and you understand what I meant, that to really understand the gospel, you have to understand that the gospel doesn't really make human sense. And can I say, for all eternity we should praise God that it doesn't, that it's not built on human logic All of these ideas come into full view in the passage before us. There are some verses that every preacher wants to preach, like there are some musical pieces that every musician wants to play, but I want to confess to you this morning that I feel very much like a kid with a new toy keyboard trying to play Mozart. This is, you almost want to spend six weeks here or just read it and sit down. 
The two verses before us, verses six, excuse me, seven and eight, are so simple that a young child can read them one time and understand what they mean. Even before they read, they can listen to them one time and understand what they mean. Yet, they are so profound and theologically dense that the greatest theologians have written on them, spoken on them, and preached on these two verses for over 2,000 years and have dove deeper and deeper into this pool that is Romans 5, 6 to 11, and no one has reached the bottom yet. This is prime real estate for presenting the gospel to sinners in evangelism, but it's, it's even more than that, prime real estate for us to feed our souls for worship. This is fodder. This is kindling for red-hot, fiery worship to the Lord. And I can think of a few better texts to study on this day before the Lord's table. I just love how God lines things up. This is preparation all week, last night, this morning, reading over it, even getting my own heart ready for, for the Lord's table. This is perfect. Let's remember where we are contextually in Romans. Turn back over to Romans 5, 1 for a moment. There's a significant turn in 5.1. It's the word therefore. Therefore captures everything that's come in the first four chapters. Remember the first four chapters. In, the, uh, in chapter 1, we understand that the gospel is Jesus Christ, verses 1 and verse 3. The good news of God is Jesus Christ, the person, who he is, what he did. And then we find out that every man is condemned. We find out some really, really bad things about human society, about the human heart in Romans 1. Ultimately, every unbeliever works as hard as possible to suppress the truth of God by sin and unrighteousness so that we can understand somehow how we can justify ourselves before God and not be held accountable to Him. That's what unbelievers do. Just as he slams that perspective, he anticipates that a Jewish mind in that time might say, those rascal Gentiles, they are anti-God, they are moralistic, they try to please God without the law, we have the law, we have the ceremonies, there's no way we're as bad as them. And Paul spends all of chapter 2 to say, actually, you're as bad as them. In fact, it's worse because you have the law of God and you've ignored the law of God and you actually do the same things that the Gentiles do in heart and in deed. But in chapter 3, we find out that there is none righteous, not even one. Jew, Gentile, no matter where you live, tall, high, red, yellow, black, or white, doesn't matter. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one has traction with God. No one has an inside angle. All are waylaid before the righteous wrath of a holy God who judges sinners because of who we are and what we do based on who we are. And we are absolutely 100% without hope in building any kind of ladder of religion to climb to heaven. So, he understands that the Jews would say, hang on a second. Then what about the Old Testament and what about us? So chapter 4, he takes two of their, 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 their greatest heroes, David and Abraham, and says... They were actually made right before God, big drum roll, on the basis of what they believed, on faith alone, not their works, not their actions. It was all based on believing who God is and what God has done on their behalf, and that's the great doctrine of justification, being made right or just before God. After explaining all of that, 
Paul then says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, based on the fact that we have justification by faith, look what he says. Having been justified by faith, big deep breath, wonderful sigh, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we get this? By introduction of faith, verse 2 says. Abraham was saved by grace through faith. Moses was saved by grace through faith. David was saved by grace through faith. We are saved by grace through faith. And then Paul does something connecting verses 2 and 3 that's remarkable. He uses this word exaltation. We've, we've talked about exalt, which is not exalt. Exalt with a U means you joy in, you, you, you're over, overwhelmed by, you, you literally, the, the, tech, the word means jump up and down with joy. You're excited about it. We exult in the hope of the glory of God in verse 2. Amen, we're all there. Then he says, not only this, not only do we exult in the hope of heaven, the glory of God, we also exult in our tribulations. And you can hear all the music stop. What? <laughs> Wait, Paul, are you actually saying that we jump up and down with excitement, we overflow with joy based on tribulations? Remember when we said that Christianity is counterintuitive? He says, yeah. And everything, everything, everything in your experience of that peace, in your enjoyment of that hope, is based on one word. And that word we find in verse 3, it's the word knowing Knowing, we can exalt in our tribulations. How? Knowing something. We know that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope, and that hope, it won't disappoint even in our tribulations. And then here's the link to our current passage because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. That idea of the love of God is what launches him grammatically into a footnote. This is a subordinate clause, a subordinate idea. The first verse in verse 6 is what? Four. That means it's built on something else. What's it built on? The love of God is poured out to us. God's love is poured out on us, is poured out to us. And then he gives a footnote, an explanation for and we looked at this last time, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That is unspeakable blessing. And he calls us so many, oh, he calls us so many names in the book of Romans. If you don't, if you struggle with self-esteem, please don't read Romans because he just tells you what it's like. You're helpless, you're a sinner, you're weak, you're ungodly, you're an enemy of God. And it gets worse beginning in chapter 6. But that's good news to know about the bad news because then the good news is that Christ redeems us from that. It's great news. You will never see the gospel as good news until you understand that your life is really bad news. Well, that leads us into a... Um, a series that we've started in these, these verses. And the series is, What's So Great About the Gospel? This is where Paul stops and says, I want you to know what's so great about this person named Jesus who gave us a plan called salvation. What's so great about the gospel? Last time, we understand that, understood from, from uh, verse 6, 
While we were helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That the gospel has a sweet answer for our soul. Secondly, today we're going to learn that the gospel demonstrates the greatest love. The gospel demonstrates the greatest love. And this is where he connects it back to the love of God which has been poured out in our hearts. Now he specifically talks about that love in verses 7 and 8. As we do so, let's discover together two perspectives for grasping the greatest love. Two perspectives for grasping the greatest love. Everyone is looking for love. And most people, as the song says, is look, are looking for love in all the wrong places. I want to give you a heads up and a little warning. This passage is fantastic, it is marvelous, but it is odd. And you're going to find out that God is so unspeakably and wonderfully different than we are. And if he weren't, none of us would ever be saved. Let's look at this first perspective in verse 7. It's really simple. The human standard of an understandable love. Let's talk about the human standard of a love that you can understand. An understandable love. He says, for one will hardly die. Stop right there. That die is talking about the death of Christ in verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly. He picks up on that idea of death. One will hardly die. He gives a footnote to the footnote. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Interesting point. Interesting illustration. This is an extension of verse 6 that picks up on that idea of death, the death of Christ for the helpless and ungodly. Of verse 6 leads Paul to an aside in verse 7 about what would motivate someone to die for someone else. Have you thought about that? What, what would you die for? Who would you die for? I, I don't know any mom or dad in this room who wouldn't say, proverbially, proverbially and literally, I, I, would take, I would take a bullet for my son or my daughter or my spouse. Why? Because we, we love them. We care about them. They're, they're kin. He's talking about people that we like here. There's two terms he uses, the good man and the righteous man. Now, there are no end to speculations about what this is and no end to errors that are made about what this is. He's not talking about righteous in terms of righteous in, in, the, in the Romans sense of the word or good in terms of moral good. He's talking about someone we would esteem as, as like you and I would say, he's such a good kid. He's a good guy. We like that person. That's the categories here. Here's the point. Someone might be willing to actually take a bullet, to die, to jump on their grenade for a good or righteous man as a substitute so that that person could live. It's understandable. We hear wartime stories, wonderful acts of bravery where people would jump on a grenade or or uh, run one direction and draw fire away from the company so, and they would sacrifice their life so the company could go the other way. Amazing stories that have brought me to tears. But helpless, powerless, enemies who hate us are not easy to love in general and certainly are beyond our realm of even consideration for substituting our life for them. Think of a person who maybe your your worst category of bad. 
Could be someone you know, could be someone you've read about, could be someone in history, could be someone on the news. Now imagine that they were about to get the execution they deserved and you, because of your love for them, said, stop, execute me instead. The point Paul's making here is that wouldn't make sense. Intuitively, it wouldn't make sense instinctively. We, we wouldn't naturally be inclined to substitute our life for someone we didn't like or who didn't like us, who was our enemy. Jesus outlines this principle, humanly speaking, in John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. He understands and recognizes that. 1 John 3, 16, we know love by this, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We understand that. Jesus affirms that. There is nothing inherently wrong with saying, I would die for someone I love. That's a noble thing. He's not saying that's a bad thing. That's a noble thing. But that's the best that human instinct can produce. Simple. Simple illustration. Which leads us, secondly, to the divine contrast of an inexplicable love. We understand that you would die for someone you love. We understand that. I understand that. I hope that I would take a bullet for my wife or my kids I would push someone out of the way that I love to, 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 to be hit by the truck because I cared about that. We all understand that. But God does not love that way. But God demonstrates his own love for us I'm going to supply some words here that are implied. And that while we were not friends and not righteous and not good, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The whole point of this verse is the best idea of human love is the exact opposite of the best idea of divine love. And on a human level, it, it doesn't make sense. And until we understand that that doesn't make sense, our worship will be shallow, yawning. Those first two words, but God, two of the greatest words in the Bible, but God, but God. What makes this verse so astonishing is that the character of God itself is at stake. How can a God who is holy, listen to Hebrews 7, 26, how can a God who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, how can that God do anything nice for us who are sinners and separated from God and guilty and defiled? How does that work? How can God possibly have any kind of love for people like that? Unholy, guilty, defiled, separated from God. Jesus' best friend, John, remember he says the disciple whom Jesus loved and is the one who wrote uh, John, the, the, the epistle, excuse me, the gospel of John about three decades after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had been written, which was not a chronological approach to understanding Jesus. They already had those three synoptic gospels, but a, a theological personal reflection on Jesus, a call to discipleship, a call to suffer, 
That John also wrote some letters. Listen to what he says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. The one who does not know, who does not love, rather, does not know God. You know why? Say this with me. For God is what? Love. God is love. He goes on, 1 John 4, 16. We've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So I hope that you hear the brakes squeaking in your, in your, in your theological understanding. How can God be holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, and yet be love in and of himself and reach down and condescend in the gospel to sinners. How can that work? God has the ability to love and hate equally without contradiction. He has the ability to judge and exercise mercy and grace equally without contradiction. God's, can we say this? God is incredibly complicated and extremely simple at the same time. He's love. A few weeks ago, we, uh, I read a quote to you. Let me just highlight that for you because it's going to come to play in this. Uh, from Jonathan Edwards. Remember uh, that famous um, sermon he preached, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? There's that illustration that all the English books now make fun of, and we'll find out where that comes from in just a moment. But let me remind you, Edwards said in 1741 at Enfield, on a Wednesday night in July, the God that holds you over the pit of hell much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insects over the fire, abhors you and has dreadfully provoked. His wrath toward you burns like fire. He looks upon you as unworthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to have to bear you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful and venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet... It is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire of hell every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night. That you were permitted to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to go to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning. But that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given that you've not gone to hell since you've sat here in the house of God. Provoking his pure eyes by your sinful and wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yea. There is nothing else that is to be given as a reason that you do not at this very moment drop into hell, O sinner. Consider the fearful danger that you're in. Hang on, I thought God is love. How does that work out? Well, that's been asked by so many. Early in the 20th century, um, the outspoken liberal theologian, if you can call him a theologian, Harry Emerson Fosdick, pastor of the Riverside Church in New York City, responded to Edwards' quote by saying this. <clears throat> Jonathan Edwards' infield sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, pictured sinners over the blazing abyss of hell in the hands of a wrathful deity who at any moment was likely to let go. And so terrific was that discourse in its delivery that women fainted and strong men clung in agony to the pillars of the church. Then he says this. Obviously, we do not believe in that kind of God anymore. As 
And as always, in reaction, we swing to the opposite extreme. So the theology of these recent years, this is early in the 20th century, we have taught a very mild, benign sort of deity. Indeed, the God of the new theology has not seemed to more to care acutely about sin. Certainly, he has not been warranted to punish heavenly, heavily. He has been an indulgent parent. And when we have sinned, a polite, excuse me, has seemed more adequate to make amends. Parts of that, Bosdick is right. His assessment that people have exchanged the wrathful God of Edwards for this benign deity who just wants a simple excuse me and it's all right. But that one sentence in the middle of that paragraph where he says, obviously, we do not believe in that kind of God anymore. You know why? You know why a liberal theologian and a hopeless heart can go there? Because there's the inability to hold in tension and imbalance the fact that God is totally wrathful and holy and totally loving at the same time. That outline, tension, that tension rather outlines the point of the text today. Think about this. Was there anything, anything in you or in anyone you know that made God stand up from his throne, go gather all the saints of old, the Old Testament saints, and, and the angels together and say, we have found someone worth bringing to heaven. If you can raise your hand and say, yeah, well, yeah, that was me, then you have not read the first four chapters of Romans. We were born as enemies, living in constant outward and inward rebellion to him and his word. You never have to teach a child how to sin, do you? There's never a day where you say, okay, today, today, this is disobedience day. I'm going to show you how to disobey. It just comes naturally. From the very time that they have their first conscious thought, every waking hour of every parent's desire and incredibly tireless exercise of parenting is this. Stop. No. Correction. 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 And that's not to say that people can't, out of common grace, act benevolently and do kind things. But the point is, our heart from the very beginning is soiled and spoiled by sin. Look at this, the, the, the text, uh, the, the designation of us in this text. While we were yet sinners, 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 <laughs> are the object of God's love. Now, maybe you've been around church so much that that sounds like, of course, but just pull the car over. God, who is holy, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, that God loves sinners. You say, what does that look like? Just listen, 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't, 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 don't miss this, Paul says. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. We'll go to heaven. 
And at that point, every Corinthian said, wait a minute, I'm in trouble. That's, I'm in that list a couple of times. And if not by action, certainly by thought. What, what does that leave me? Where, where am I? Nobody can go to heaven in that list. And then verse 11, don't you love 1 Corinthians 6, 11? And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Heaven is not for people who've earned perfection. Heaven is for people who have accessed Jesus' perfection in their account. Look back over Romans chapter 1. Who are these sinners? I mean, their lists are, are voluminous in the scriptures. You, you can actually start back up at verse 26. For this reason, the exchange of truth of God for, for a lie, for this reason, um, God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, lesbianism. And in the same way, men also abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, Men, men committing indecent acts and receiving their own persons, the due penalty of error, their error, homosexuality. And you think, ha, huh, yeah, that's, that's rancid, bad uh, sin. Oh, really? Look, watch this. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Look at that right there in the list. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Can you find yourself in that list? That's right alongside the effeminate and the homosexuals and all the, the adulterers and every murderer's strife. And although they knew, know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. We're entertained by sin in this day. We watch sin. For, we pay money to go watch sin to be entertained by the things for which Jesus died and somehow think that's Okay. Will you turn to Ephesians 2? Let's connect the two sides of God. Wrathful. Judgmental. Creator. Holy. With his loving side. We often read these first uh, four verses, but I want want you to notice something that connects to what Paul is saying in Romans 5, verse 8. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lust of our own flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. <sighs> but God, now look at this, but God, being rich in mercy, look at this phrase, because of his great what? What? Love with which he loved who? The people in those first verses, the us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, 
He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And he raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? This is incredible. Verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show off. Only God can truly show off. Show, display the surpassing riches of his grace and the kindness and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Forever a person who is saved by grace because he recognizes his sin will stand in heaven as a trophy of God. Look at what my love did. Look at who my love was directed toward. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And don't, don't get, uh, don't get, get uh, very high by yourself. Not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of anything you could do, no works that no one could boast. For his poem, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The point is all about the distinction between God's love and ours. He doesn't love the people that you and I would love. He doesn't love the way that you and I would love. We could go on in Ephesians 3, 18 and 19. Paul describes God's love as unfathomable, unthinkable, unspeakable. He prays that believers may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. His point is, when you come up to the love of God, it's like coming up to the ocean or the Grand Canyon, or in the Himalayas, and bring being breathless at the sight. Here's the deal. What we are to understand about the expanse of God's love is beyond measure. It is indeed quite possible to exhaust the love of a spouse, friends, siblings, or parents. It is impossible to exhaust the love of God. Let me say it this way. You cannot, this may be the best thing you've ever heard in your whole life. And it wasn't me, this is God. You cannot outsin God's love. You, you cannot come to the point where you say, God, I've crossed the line. God cannot, will not, should not love me. He should not love you in the first place, but he does. That's the good news. Does anyone stand with their hand raised in heaven and say, You know, I'm a little better than them? You know your heart, don't you? Don't you? Yet God, God offers his love toward unbelievable wicked people like you and me. Just felt good to say you for a second. I'm at the head of that list. Oh, I love that song. Aaron's going to lead us in it in a little bit. Frederick Lehman, The Love of God. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to what? The lowest hell. Why did he say that? Because that's our address. One of the things about God's love that Paul emphasizes is the sovereign nature of it. I just... I, I just I don't have a category for this. If you're still in Ephesians, let me read this to you. Ephesians 1. We're going to come to a full understanding of this in Romans 9, by the way. Everyone gets tripped up with this on the election side of this. Just hold that intention. 
Look at the main point. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless in him. Please put the first, the last two words of verse 4 with verse 5. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. He elects, chooses. His love is sovereign. Because you're probably saying by now, well then, if God loves sinners, and then, then who gets that love? It's a tricky question. It's a tricky answer. James Montgomery Boyce writes, God's love is a sovereign love. His, voice is, his love rather is uninfluenced by anything in the creature. Listen to that. His love is uninfluenced by anything in us, in the creature. And if that be so... It is the same as saying that the cause of God's love lies only in himself. In Scripture, no cause for God's love other than his electing will is ever given. That's, that's incredible. Remember Deuteronomy 7, verse 7? It, he tells Israel. I mean, Israel's pounding their chest and saying, we're, we're the, the chosen of God uh, among the nations, and, and they were, and they are, and we praise God for that, and we're heirs of that, that blessing. However, he told them, listen, Moses says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, love and choosing together, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Now, did you hear the, the circular language in there? He tells Israel, God loves you because he loves you. Not because you were attractive. He loves you because it's entirely within his will. That's where we are here, back to Romans as well. God doesn't love like we love. We love because we see something lovely in someone. And praise God Almighty that he does not love that way. Why would God love a sinner? Why would God love a sinner? He demonstrates, by the way, this is a present active uh, verb that means he's always in the, in the tense of doing it. He doesn't demonstrate it once and then walk away, walk off stage. He is always ever present in the gospel demonstrating his love. His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, and here's the expression of his love, Christ died for us. You might die for someone you like. Christ died for someone he should never have liked. You might die for someone who's lovely and attractive. Christ died for the helpless, ungodly, sinful enemies of his Father. It's not based on anything but God himself. His attribute of love, his disposition and decision to love the unlovable which we all are. Just flip the page, Romans 8, verse 31. Because if you're in that, swimming in that pool, you're going to ask eventually, okay, but if God loves me, why can't I get my locker open? 
What about the bad things? And he dealt with that in verses 3 to 5. What about, what, what, what about when bad things happen? Is God up there saying, well, I don't love them anymore? Just throw them to the world. Let, let the trials overwhelm them. You will at some point, you will at some point, take my word, doubt the love of God. All you have to do is live long enough and have a trial severe enough and you will ask that dark question, does God really love me? Paul knew that and so he answers that for us in verse 31, Romans 8. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, hey, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us, how will he uh, not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring against a charge against God's elect? Remember, his election and love are the same thing. God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ is he who died. Yes, rather was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who's praying for you? Who intercedes for us? Paul says, okay, let me ask the question that you're asking. Then who will separate us from the love of God and Christ? Love of Christ. To say the love of Christ is equal to say the love of God. They are one and the same. Then he asks a series of questions. Will tribulation separate you from the love of Christ, love of God? How about distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? Can any trial you will encounter separate you and get in between you and God? Just as it is written, for your sake we're being put to death all day. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, these things, those bad things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who, what does it say? Loved us. Who loved us. For I'm convinced. Then he he goes to even a worse category of situations and trials. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, no category, no dimension, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. How do you get the love of God? Here's the gospel. It's in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God is not some mysterious mist that you plug into and you get loved. The love of God is expressed in the gospel. You know John 3.16. It would have been impossible to talk about this without going to John 3.16, wouldn't it? James Montgomery Boyce, he's just genius in the way he says this. He talks about how God demonstrates his love in John 3.16. Listen to this. He says, God the greatest lover, so loved, that's the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company, that he gave the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whosoever, the greatest opportunity, believeth the greatest simplicity, in him, the greatest attraction, should not perish, the greatest promise, but the greatest difference, have the greatest certainty, eternal life, the greatest possession. How can you be loved by God? Here's a simple answer. 
you can assure that that love of God that will never leave you will be granted to when you love his son. When you believe that Jesus died for your sins as a substitute, that he grants you his righteousness by imputation, that he rose from the dead and offers you life forever with him. And he grasp all that by believing, by faith, and not by working, then he will say to you, you are my son, you're my daughter. But to as many as believed, he gave the right to become children of God, John 1 says. Back to Lehman and this great song. I, I, John MacArthur once had a, a discussion with... Um, the Gaithers, who probably have marked our generation more with their songwriting than, than anyone else. And I remember MacArthur asking, um, Mr. Gaither is saying, what do you believe are the greatest lyrics ever penned outside of Scripture? And without hesitation, he said the third verse of the love of God. Let me read that for you. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, but stretched from sky to sky. I hope you're loved by God. And you'll know that you're loved by God when you love His Son. Let's pray together. Prepare our hearts for celebrating the Lord's table. Father, I know my heart. that you would love me with a love that cannot be separated, that you would grant favor and grace with an assurance that's impenetrable by everything and anything on this earth. Anything and everything in the unseen world. Lord, that's, that's a thought beyond our ability to grasp. I can't, I can't process it. As David said, it's too great for me. It's, the sum of that knowledge is too wonderful. We cannot attain to it. And your love for us is not an emotional affection because you feel sorry for us. It's not a disposition because you want inhabitants of heaven. Your love for us is manifest in the crucifixion of your Son by your purpose and your providence. Cause us to worship. And Lord, as our men will pass the bread to us in a moment, give us a moment to confess sin that you have forgiven, to thank you for love that overwhelms every transgression we could commit. and to sing the love of God from our heart. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church 
in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs> 